Welcome, welcome, welcome to Building the Black Educator Pipeline podcast. You have come to the place where we talk to real people in the real struggle doing the real work. I am your host, Shana Terrell, educator activist dedicated to the lifelong struggle of freedom and liberation for my people. Today, we connect with co-founder and president of the National Parents Union, Carrie Rodriguez, and deputy director of Parent Voice and Outreach of the National Parents Union, Maritza Gertie. So today we'll be discussing the impact of parents on the education system and the importance of parent-centered spaces in education. Ladies, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us. We're excited to be here. I am super excited to be here. I'm always excited when we have parent educators um, in the building and when we can lead with like you're a parent and an educator. I'm always excited for my my fellow parent educators. So, of course, I know you guys, right? Um, done some work in the past, definitely, with MPU. And I know Sharif is a huge fan of you all. And I know you're a fan of, of, of my guy. And Maritza, you and yes. I go way back um, to our in-school days in Simon Gratz. But the people out here don't know you. So I would love for each of you to take some time just to tell the people a little bit about yourself. Who you are. What should we know about you? What should we know about your work? You know, past and present. So Carrie, I'll, I'll let you set it off. All right. Well, my most important job, my most important title is being Matthew Miles and David's mama. That's why I do this work. That's why I got into this work. That's why I continue on in this work, even when it gets real hard, uh, because I'm their mom. And I got into this work, you know, having spent my entire life working in social justice as a community organizer, uh, but then finding that my son was starting to get trapped in the same system that I had been trapped in and underserved by. And I just couldn't stand by and allow him to become, you know, hamburger the way, you know, the system had turned me into hamburger. I was a kid who uh, was experiencing foster care and trauma and got expelled from public school and just really thrown away by the system, you know, being a kid that was just growing up in a really tough situation um, that needed help. And I had the same system that was, you know, calling DCF on me, throwing me out of the building at the same time. I had nobody I could trust at all. And so when I became a mama and my oldest son, who is brilliant and is gifted and is bright and wonderful, but just happens to have autism and ADHD, got suspended 36 times in kindergarten, mm. I was like, oh, hell no. No, 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 no. Uh, so I always say, you know, I, I've been organizing girls to fight for a long time. But when I was young on the block, I was I was the organizer there. We were going to go fight. Now <laughs> I go fight, but we just channel it in a good direction, right? Because, you know, talent, Talent is, is equitably distributed opportunity. So now I have an opportunity to use it, my talents in a different way, so I do it. But, you know, I, I started organizing other mamas um, who were in similar situations. I started off in the Latino community because uh, my husband, uh, my first husband who has passed on now, but at the time we were both, um, you know, in similar situations. He had a mind like a human calculator. Uh, we lived two miles away from MIT but he couldn't get out of the first semester of community college. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Um, but because there was just no opportunity, the system was stacked against us, you know, parents that, that didn't speak English, parents who were undocumented, you know, we were set up to fail from the beginning. 
And so we just decided like, no, this was not going to be the path for our kids. Um, we organized across five communities. Now we're in 22 communities across Massachusetts. And through that work, you know, we found pockets of parent power across the country. That's how we found Maritza because she was doing powerful work in Philadelphia. And we say, girl, game recognize game. Like we see you. Like, let's, could you imagine if we huddle up and like we work together, you do what's right for you. We'll do what's right for us. But when it comes together, like let's fight side by side so we can get something done nationally for kids. And that's really the, the whole premise of the National Parents Union. Like we started with about 185 folks uh, and our friend Sharif Almeki was right there and his mama, who is, is one of our, our ancestors and, and one of our, our founding delegates of the National Parents Union. And, you know, we came together and said, you know, if we had a united voice and we were all mamas and daddies and abuelitas and we had folks from across the country coming together saying, let's put our kids first and have a united movement of parents that are centered around kids, we could get something done. And now we're up over a thousand affiliated organizations, all 50 states, D.C. and Puerto Rico, because, you know, we, we are, are singular in focus by any means necessary. We want our kids to have equitable access to opportunity and we're not going to take no for an answer. So that's kind of who I am and where we are. But Maritza, we want to throw it over to you, maybe. Hey, and, and saying it just like you said, um, I mean, my story started as a, as a first generation um, Dominican here helping my mother um, who did not have a very good grasp back then of the English language. Um, she made a hard choice, a choice that required her to work more than two jobs to be able to, she felt that the parochial school that was very near our home in New Jersey would be better than the public school. One, because it was being paid for two, because she didn't feel comfortable having her daughter, her daughter's walk over two miles every day to and from school. So she was very uncomfortable with that. But that education uh, helped give me a foundation that I would not have had because like I said, with my mother not knowing English, she herself did not go beyond the fourth grade in Dominican Republic. So she did not ever feel comfortable trying to show me how to do my homework. I mean, to this day, she says that she is illiterate. And I tell her, no, you're not. You know how to read, you know how to write. It's just very different. But since then, I've always helped others. And I chose, when I became a mom, I became a mom at 19, that I would always try to be there for my children because my mother was not able to. Not that she didn't want to, but because of her responsibilities. And fast forward to now, um, there are still many, many families that cannot be a part of the conversation, not because they don't want to be a part of it, but because they cannot because of their responsibilities of taking care of their families. Um, I am a mom of, of, of six. I'm a grandmother. Um, part of those six uh, are some wonderful children that we've been fostering. Uh, we were about to adopt a second child very soon before the end of the school year. And I have always felt that parents need to know and be a part of the conversation. And me and and me finding or the National Parents Union finding me was totally by coincidence because they were calling up every single organization across the country, any organization that's doing the work for families and children. And I happened to say, you know what, let me take this call. Cause someone kept on leaving a message for our ED when I was working over at El Concilio. And that's how it started for me. The minute they were telling me what, what national parents Union was about, I, it just sang to me. It talked to my heart. 
I went to New Orleans to that convening and just like Carrie said, I was like, I'm the only person from Philly here. Oh my gosh, what am I doing here? And then I ran into Sharif and his mom and I was like, yay, I'm not alone. <laughs> and that's how it started. And it's been amazing ever since. Everywhere that we go, we tell people about what we do and you know how we're there to help. And if whenever someone is in need, we're there for them. I love that. So speaking about what y'all do, can you tell us what MPU actually does? Like, who are you guys? So we have three buckets of work. Um, a lot of people outwardly know us uh, around our policy work and our data because we have uh, established the National Parents Union poll, which is a poll of parents uh, that has been going on for more than three years. We've done it 30 times nationally. It's a you know, widely used, super reputable poll um, that the media uses, different organizations use, the U.S. Department of Education, President Biden, um, the Republican Party. Everybody uses this poll because for the first time ever, we have real data about what is important to parents and families that is not just, you know, something that some special interest group made up and who thinks they know parents or somebody who talked to two parents. Oh, well, parents tell me, well, what parents? What parents are you talking about? Like, is it all American families? And how do you come to that knowledge? For the first time ever, we're really asking those questions to be able to quantify. Because what was very frustrating to us, and I think is frustrating to a lot of advocates and activists is we're often dismissed. Like, even if we have something critical to say, we have evidence, we've been there, we have lived experience, they will dismiss us and say, well, that's just your school, or that's just your city, or you don't really know, H how do you how do you know that's for everybody? Well, we, we seek to dismiss any of that by having real data and a national poll that says, oh, hold on a second, this poll actually reflects the demographics and the geography of the entire United States, so we can say definitively, these are the priorities of parents. So being able to set the record straight and say, this is what parents care about. And no, it's not banning books and your anti-CRT crap. That's about nine to 11% of families. Actually, what parents and families care about is the fact that you're trying to kill SNAP benefits and take money out of the food, uh, out of the mouths of our babies. That's what parents care about, that we're in an economic crisis and that our kids, they are, are in a mental health crisis and that we're very worried about whether or not they, they are literate and they have the right to read and whether or not we're, we're actually setting them up so that they can have a path towards economic mobility in the future. That's what parents care about, not this sideshow crap that you're putting up. So that is number one. Number two is finding all of these organizations. We do the work of, and this is through Tafshir Cosby, the pride of Newark, New Jersey. I got to put some respect on it. I know. When you mention Newark, you gotta you gotta put some respect on it. Uh, but Tafshir and her team every single day is doing nothing but finding every parent advocate, every parent advocacy organization, every org everybody she can find under the sun to make connection, figure out what they're doing, how they're doing it, do they need help, or are they doing something that's not helpful? so that we have a power mapping of who those folks are. We build solidarity with people who are trying to do right and just work so that we can build a more powerful movement. 
And then it's the work of Maritza and my dear friend and my sister, Bernita Bradley from Detroit, Michigan, which, who run the, the Center for Parent Voice, which is every single day empowering parents who are closer to the, closest to the pain. So they are speaking their truth, whether it's to uh, our elected officials on the local level, the state level, or even the federal level. We had parents in the White House two weeks ago. You know, making sure that they are speaking their truth and speaking truth to power and are seated at those tables and that the media gets the story right. And we are dedicated and devoted to making sure that parents get to speak their truth without any filters, without any gatekeepers, that reporters are telling the right story and they're listening to the people that are closest to the pain. So around those three centers, we try to hold folks accountable so that we're really focused on our kids getting better outcomes, but we're saying that we're saying the tough things and we're being truthful about it. I love that. But it also raises so many questions um, for me. Um, and one of the things that hearing you talk, and definitely I would love to hear Marissa, your thoughts on this too. As you're talking about the sideshows that are happening, right? Like parents being against CIT and all this other stuff. Those are also, they seem to be the loudest voices, right? So how are these people getting to be center stage, right? When you're talking about they're 9 to 11% of the parent population and what parents' real goals and the real things they want, right? How is this 9 to 11% getting to be like amplified and volume and elevated on so many levels and the real issues are left that in the dark? That 9 to 11% is actually backed by people that do not want our children to be educated. So that party that is out there backing them, giving them you know, pack money to allow them to be out trying to run for school boards, trying to run for elected other elected seats in communities, whether it's at the local, state, or national level, they're being backed by some powerful money, monies that, you know, that belong to people that do not look like us that are right here talking right now. They don't look like us. They don't come from the same kind of backgrounds as we have. They are more affluent, you know, individuals that would rather just whitewash everything, set us back decades as far as what our rights are, educationally and even civically in this country. They're the ones that are making noise, but we are here to counteract that with, you know, with, you know, we're trying to bridge, build certain bridges and coalitions, but we also are very aware of the fact that there are many out there that do not want us to work together, that want to keep us in silos because they feel that keeping us separate is easier and because they know if we come together, we're going to be a force that can't be dealt with. And Shayna, just to jump in too, like it makes sense that they would, they would get the most attention. This is the ultimate act of white supremacy. It's what they always do. Um, they, you know, white people who are trying to protect white supremacy have always been able to grab the mic and hold us all hostage. And the thing that is very frustrating to us and why we feel data is so important is that the media is complicit in this. Why are you taking, why aren't you asking deeper questions? Like, who are you? Who do you actually represent? Like you say you represent families. Well, you just popped up on a Facebook group like two months ago. Like how, like what is this all about? But watching a crazy white lady grab a microphone and scream her face off about pornography and all of her, her deep fears that, you know, her, her position in society is going to be upended by, you know, us confronting the truth about our racist history. Like that's very sexy to cover. Like that's, that's very easy. 
And frankly, like that's what we've always done. So for those of us who have been about this and, and aren't new to this, but are true to this, like it's, it's not surprising to us. This is what always happens. Like white folks will take the mic and will try to dominate the conversation because that's the way it's always been done, which is why we are committed to fighting as hard as we possibly can to say, no, 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 no. These folks don't represent all families. Not all families are racist and crazy. Um, actually, we do have concerns and we'd like to be hurt. Mm. And you guys both point out a very important point, And it's two things. Money and power um, is what is behind uh, the majority of this. So as soon as you said they're funded by PACs, they're funded by people. Ah, this is how you get the airwaves. This is how you get the publicity. This is how you get the privilege. This is how you get the connections because there's money involved. So folks who are caring about real issues, right? Like when you use the example of the SNAP benefits, I'm out here trying to figure out how I'm going to feed myself and my family. I don't. I, I already am below the poverty line and don't have money. So I damn sure don't have enough money to sit up here for somebody, you know, buy time or buy space on the mic. Like I don't, I don't have that kind of time. So that's an important point to to point out that that money is still a very important factor um, in all of this. It's not even just buying the time, mm-hmm. like being able to take time away from your job to show up at a school board meeting. And Maritza, you're up there till like one, yes. two o'clock in the morning. Sometimes oh my gosh. that is a privilege. Mm-hmm. So folks that are leave, leave, live in hand to mouth, like you don't have time to sit there all night, eight hours to, to speak for two minutes. These folks do like that's like even aside from buying the time, just the luxury of, of having a life that, you know what, you got somebody else to to watch your kids and feed them and wash them and everything else and get like, it's crazy. Yes. But again, but the, going down that road, we're hitting on some very important factors that I think happens a lot uh, when we're talking about black people, black parents in general, um, that there's a very bad rap created um, from educators. Um, especially in severely poor, concentrated urban communities, um, that Black parents are disengaged and don't want to be a part of the education process. It's a really terrible narrative. Um, and I want you guys to speak on that because when I see these comparisons about these 9 and 11, 11% who get the mic, right? There's always this thing about like white people are just more organized, right? Then that gives a sense that they care about their children more. Um, so I would love for both of you, because I saw your faces both balled up like, uh-uh, um, about this narrative that's created about Black parents being disengaged from the education process and not caring about their children. That is absolutely a bunch of nonsense, because I, I see it. Is and, and again, I said it earlier, it's not that they don't want to be involved. They cannot. They cannot be at a meeting at their school district at 10 o'clock in the morning, or they cannot be at that meeting at 6 o'clock at night because they're both, either they're working or they're home taking care of their children. So it takes a lot. And the the unfortunate thing is that a lot of the people that are in these higher positions on these school boards, they keeping it that way. You know, Mm -hmm. let's say, let's have a meeting at a time that's better for everybody to be able to attend. Let's do it via Zoom. Let's do it on a Saturday. Not necessarily on a Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock to talk about the school's budget that's going to pass, the district's budget Mm -hmm. that's going to pass. They hope that parents don't show up. They like it when a parent is not that involved. And then the parents that are able to be involved, that do ask the questions, they get vilified because, oh, you are, you know, you know what's going on. You've learned 
how to get information and information is power and they don't want us to have that kind of power. They can't stand me at the school district, Shana, because when I show up, <laughs> I'm like, listen, I know your names. I know what you have not been doing. And then I don't need the um, the little cow town where they run after me and give me their business card because then they don't call me back. And then when I call them on it, oh, man, why didn't you call this lady back? Because y'all full mm-hmm. of it. It's all for show. <laughs> the other thing, and I'm not going to speak on, you know, on behalf of black families or black parents, because that's not for me to do. But I will speak from my perspective. You know, ki- the parents of today are the underserved kids of the last generation. Mm. You know, my I have two kids that attend a school that's named for the man who expelled me from school. Oh, wow. Every day I have to drop my babies off at a school that's literally named for that man. Mm. And so... I did it this morning and it caught my, it catches me every time I see that name. But, you know, because of that and because we were underserved or pushed out and all of that, like many, many families, there's been no restorative justice. We're out there. You can't tell me a mother who's working two or three jobs, killing herself, trying to stay on these kids, make sure that they're out of trouble, that they're cared for, they know they're loved, they're on top of homework, all this. You cannot tell me that that is a parent who does not deeply love their child. But the indictment that we go through around you don't care, you're not show because we don't show up the way that they want us to or, or they demand that we do. After, like, and, and do we understand that we're actually asking parents to engage with their abuser the limited free time they have at, because they're working uh, sometimes very low wage jobs because they themselves have been underserved. They're trying to do the best they can. They got limited free time. And then you want us to spend it with you. Mm. When you come at us with contempt, you, you treat our kids terribly. It's a disrespectful conversation. You're talking at us and not with us. And, and we're going to spend what limited free time we have with you. Like make it make sense. Cause that's not like, and we don't, we don't talk about that piece of it and what we ask know. of parents, but we, we certainly like to come down like a ton of bricks when we don't show up on their terms. And again, the terms that have been set and 80% of our educators are white women that have been set by them and their expectations. Can we talk about that at some point? We should absolutely talk about it and talk about it now. Um, and the reason why we should talk about it is because there are two, again, important points that you guys are bringing up. Marissa, your point about, you know, in other communities where a white woman grabs the mic, you and Carrie's point about that, right? She's celebrated. Um, yes. In our communities, when a black woman grabs the mic, be quiet, you loud, you, you aggressive, you get yes. out. All of these things are placed on a black parent. Imagine yes. somebody walking up in, in a district meeting and grabbing the mic, honey, and saying you will listen to me. They won't They'll be, get arrested. They, absolutely. They'll get arrested. Absol- They'll be like, okay, absolutely. let's go. <laughs> Security, where you at, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Throwing that lady on the floor, putting her in a chokehold, right? This is somebody's mother yes. that, that folks will, will not hesitate to do that to. Um, but in other communities, it's celebrated. It's celebrated so much um, that these women will get on the, the evening news, prime times, get deals and interviews to speak on behalf of their community. We were in the Connecticut legislature in the House of Representatives two months ago with black families, mm. brown families. They called security 
because not because we were acting a fool we know how to act we know how to get into those spaces but because they were in the state house while black and brown like and something could happen like <laughs> yep. that's what happens yeah. that that's the reality of it but again it's about who sets the standard for what right so if i'm a fellow white woman and i see my white sister up there using her voice you know i'm advocate i'm supporting that you go girl Right? I'm a white woman who sees the same black parent. I'm scared. There's intimidation. They're intimidated. Yes. Oh my God. Is she going to fight me after this meeting? Is she going to fight me right now when she's only talking? So, all of those things in race have a dynamic um, that, that play into that. So, I'm super glad that you guys brought up this point. Um, just about really, right? Who's setting the standard in education and then how that then impacts our parents? Because I think a lot of times, you know, we talk about education, especially the curriculum issue, right, in education. And we talk about who are the school leaders, who gets to set the standard for that, right? But those conversations happen in silos in certain communities. In other communities, parents will hop on that mic and say, you will not teach my child this. This is not happening in school. So much so that laws and policies are now passed about the things that you cannot teach their children. Their black, their black parent in one of these neighborhoods get up and say, you ain't teaching about no George Washington out here. We're going to learn about how, who we were before your little slave ships came. And we're going to learn about what the impact is and who we are after. We don't want to talk about George Washington. That Can you see a world where that can happen? No, because why? They'll be silenced. <laughs> They'll be jailed. They'll be villainized yes. um, in those ways. They'll be jumped by the cops before they get the sentence out of their mouth. Who are we joking? I, how, many, how much video do we have? of black and brown families standing up at a microphone and all of a sudden you see the security guards come up right exactly. behind them. Absolutely. Because it's 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 built in. Mm -hmm. It's built in and white parents have the expectation that they're gonna be heard and things are gonna change because they said so. Absolutely. Because they said so. And they're empowered to 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 feel that way. Um, and it makes me think, right, especially with the laws and stuff, right? Sometimes I'm like, I'm not going to get into sometimes what parents want to teach their kids, right? Is it wrong? Is it ignorant? Absolutely. You want to tell your kids lies? I mean. That's for, that's, that's your lie to tell. It's, yes. It's okay, that's, it's okay. And I just talked about this yesterday. It's okay if as a parent, there is a subject matter that you may not feel comfortable having your child exposed to. Yes, you can let the teacher know. If they're going to talk about a particular thing, I'd rather my, my child not be a part of it. But that does not fine. give you the right to make a blanket Absolutely. statement and say, I don't want the entire class or the entire school to learn about this because I don't like it. No one has a right, right to do that. Absolutely. And that's where the data becomes important because we re we asked in our National Parents Union poll, we asked parents, do you believe if one parent has a problem with a library book, that that library book should be removed from the library? Or should it just be, you know, restricted to that one student can't take out that book? Yes. The vast majority of parents said, yes, if you don't want your kid to read the book, don't read, don't the, read book. the book. That's that doesn't mean you get the rest of us that you don't get access to that knowledge absolutely so that's where we push back against oh well parents want this no they, they don't. don't look at them look at the numbers look at the data some parents want whatever and again absolutely right marissa i agree completely that's your right to want to tell your lie tell your lies to your children not tell your children the truth but what if i demanded that you start telling people how george washington and thomas jefferson was rapists right because i want my child 
to know the truth. I would like that to be a quick, I don't want to celebrate um, these people, these people who raped and pillaged my people. I don't want that for my kid. I don't. So I think in a lot of instances, you know, as we're being silenced, we should also be (laughs) organizing behind what we actually want and what we want our children to know as well. And I would love for educators to see parents as an asset and a partner in that, in black community. Yes, we are partners. Definitely. I mean, you can't, what I appreciate the most and what I love the most is when I am able to communicate, it's a two-way communication between myself and my children's school. I can call my school leader. I can call all of my children's teachers. I can call the dean of students because I've, I've had the opportunity to know them. And all I ask of parents is if you can, when you can, make that connection with the school, establish that connection, have that conversation. But on the other hand, educators take the time to get to know not just your student, but the families of your students as well. That's very important. But this is, I was just going to say, to to add on to what Marissa was saying, but this is, again, why we think it is so important that we have more Black teachers. We need more Black teachers because those relationships are a hell of a lot easier when you see yourself reflected in classroom leadership, right? Because another thing we're not talking about is the belief gap. And if 80% of America's teachers are white women, Mm. Like even the kindness that that sometimes is disguised around, well, you know, these kids are not really capable. Mm-hmm. Or, I'm helping these children. I'm saving these children. <laughs> like that is not kind. And if you think we're stupid and we don't know when you're talking about our kid or to us like that, you're out of your mind. So when we have black and brown excellence from the beginning in classrooms, and you're able to have and build that bond where you're on the same team because you know that black children and brown children and poor children and indigenous children are capable of excellence and they are whole they they didn't come to you broken we didn't give you broken children that you are saving and fixing and that's at best when they think that they're saving and fixing them yes but that you know no like this is a this is a brilliant child and all they need is we need to take this talent and give and 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 have it cultivated and have, watch it blossom. Like that's when you can overcome some of that past trauma that we have, mm-hmm. you know, about how no one believed in us, and we can do this thing differently and have a transformational relationship. But that's why I believe, like, we got to have more black teachers. We got to have more brown teachers. We need indigenous teachers because you don't have to overcome that implicit bias that exists that you think our kids aren't even capable just, or, or that they're somehow broken just because they're black and brown. That's not the, that's not the case. It's not. Absolutely. Our children do not need saving. Our children do not need saving. I don't need anyone swooping in saying, I'm, you know, because of me, your children are going to learn because of the way I'm going to teach them. And I'm saying this as a, as a parent, that's on the site selection committee at my children's school. And I've sat in this week on 15 interviews. And I lie to you not, 80% of those people that were interviewing were saying those types of things. I know you, when asked, why do you want to come to this school? Oh, because I think I, I will do so I will do so well at this school. I have so much to contribute. I can help the students. Mm. So when I tell you, y'all are hitting on some stuff that like makes the the hair on the back of my neck 
stand up because of the things that I have dealt with being in um, K-12 education. Yes. And I mean, being being disgusted um, with some of these teachers for, like you said, the belief gap. Mm. I know good and damn well you don't care about these kids. That's right. Um, or I'm listening to your indictment and your judgments of a parent, right? When you have no right to sit up here um, and judge and indict, and you don't know what these people are going through. And to make these assumptions um, about people and about care and, and situations, all of that, um, I'm listening to Sue, and it's like, <sighs> raise, like, ah. And then the, the savior complex, I can't even, right? You know how many people and how many situations I've encountered where I've had to tell people, you do understand that this child has a family. Yes. Regardless of what you feel about the family, regardless of what you see as neglect, they do have a family. That's right. That child's mother is still present in the ways that they can be present. That child's father is still present in the way they can be present. That child's grandmother or grandparents are present in the way that they can be present. Those people still exist. You don't have a right to ignore their voice. You don't have a right to ignore their choices for their child because you think that you know better. And this whole thing about like, this child needs me. I'm going to save them. They can live with me. All the families have money. I'm going to put them through college. You are a partner in that. Okay. That's what, that's all you are as a partner. And you should only kind of push yourself into that kid's life in that situation as far as the family will allow, will allow right. you to. And because- the part that we have to uh, get folks to understand is that the reason why we are so critical to this com- this conversation is that we have a vested interest in their success because the consequences for us are far greater. Absolutely. If, you screw up, if you're a fourth grade teacher and you screw up this year, you know what? You're going to get another crop of kids. You can try it again. Do that you can screw different. up again and get another check too for years to come. Yes. Let's talk about it. Yes. I don't get a new fourth grader that we can just scrap and do again. I, w- I have to live with the consequences of that. He has to live with the consequences of that. And the, uh, the end, the outcome consequences are things like poverty, incarceration, death. You know, so it's not just a, oh, well, you know, this kid fell through the cracks. Those cracks could kill my kid. Mm-hmm. And we need to understand that that's why parents show up. I, I've worked with parents here in Boston who have gotten trespassed from schools because they will go in because they are so upset and worried and scared and the way that that shows up culturally is just like i am now i'm trying so hard not to hold my because i talk with my hands and when i get fired up i get real fired (laughs) up because this is my kid and oh my god but the way that again that might show up for some people who aren't culturally confident competent around my culture will will get intimidated and threatened and think i'm being violent and not understand that when Mm -hmm. i'm just saying like I don't want my kid to die. I don't want my kid to get expelled. That was the greatest trauma of my life. And I'm scared as hell that my kid will have to go through that again. Yes. So like, it's about making sure that the people I'm sitting across from, those educators that are supposed to be there helping and guiding, understand where this passion and this fear come from. Because I'm, I'm upset and worried and scared because the consequences for my baby, the most precious thing in my life, are very, very dire if we don't get this right. And stop judging me off of a moment, right? Oh my god! Sometimes you, yes. you see a moment. It's a moment. Stop judging parents off of a moment. It was a moment. It was a thing. We all have high emotions. Imagine if you were judged in some of the worst or most high intentional emotions in your life, right? Stop judging people off of a moment. And parents have the right to be emotional because they're parents. That's right. And then the other thing that I see too, don't put yourself at the same level as a parent, meaning 
I've told people, right, sometimes kids spend more time uh, or the same amount of time with me, right? Because I have your kid five days a week, right? From sometimes 7.30 to 6 o'clock at night. So let's respect again. I'm going to continue to use the word partnership, right? That it is a partnership. Your your child is with me for all this time. So yes, as an educator, respect the work that I'm doing, the things that I'm pouring in. I'm an extension of you. But I think that sometimes people get it twisted that they think they are, that you're not their parent. You don't have equal stake in that kid's life. I'm an extension of the life that this parent wants to build for their child. And they're trusting me to do that. But all I am is an extension of of that parent, I'm extension of this child's extended family. But hinting back to the the kind of the main point that that Carrie you made, I don't know if I want a white woman with races or extra savior vibes to be in my extended family for my kid, right? I got some questions. If you're not willing to do the work and you're not willing to be re- reflective about your position um, in our community, in our society. But absolutely, educators, we are an extension of what that those hopes, those dreams, and those wants that a parent has for their kid. Absolutely. Even the language we use. Like, my child might be your student, but that's my child. A student, being a student is only a piece of my child's life. A piece. But that, we're, I am invested in my child, my entire child, that human being. So when we get into these education conversations, like we at the National Parents Union, we don't talk about students. We talk about children because yep. they are children. They're not just students. That's just a piece of who they are. Do we understand that? And do we understand the context of that? I don't know sometimes. But you bring up an important point. And I think the reason why people don't understand that and don't understand the context of it is because people don't run schools that are parent-led or parent-centered spaces. Oh, yes. So <laughs> so clearly you have a feeling about that, Marissa. I would love to talk to you about, tell us about the importance of that. Pa- parent-led or parent-centered spaces in education. Parent, parent-led or parent-centered. When I brought up in a previous uh, group yesterday that I think that parents and guardians should be a part of the hiring team for teachers that they should sit in on these interviews. I either got crickets or people say, I don't think that's necessary for a parent to be involved in the hiring of a teacher. I'm like, really? Why? Because I'm going to ask you, how do you deal with forming a relationship with a parent or a guardian of a student? What do you do? And I'm not talking about just parent teacher night or report card night. Or the, the, you know, the fun stuff, the ceremonies. I'm talking about, do you, are you purposeful in getting to know each of your parents? That's how I got to know you, Shana. That's Absolutely. how I got to know Winslow, my mentor, because they took the time to get to know me, ask me about me. Because when you find out what your children's parents feel passionate about, you can then assess what's going on with that, with that child if something's going on. Well, and let's double click this for a second, because sometimes I feel like we're giving people human being lessons. <laughs> like, you know what I think is wild? What's that? You know, sometimes you get you you get a, a letter in the mail, right, saying Miss Jones is going to be your child's fifth grade teacher. Great. Who's Miss Jones? Where'd you go to school? How long have you been a teacher? Like what do you like? What's your background? What's your training? Like, what's your expertise? Tell me about your track record of success. You just get 
Miss Jones is going to be your kid's teacher. And Miss Jones can decide the trajectory of your kid whether they get access to advanced work, whether like all this, your your child's educational destiny for a year. I don't know, Miss Jones. You don't tell me anything. I go to a school website. I don't see a biography. I don't see anything. Sometimes teacher, good teachers will share that stuff because they want to build relationships. But you want to know everything about me. You want to come up in my house and do a house visit, all kinds of stuff. I don't know you. <laughs> like, can we know each other? Like, you want to be friends with me, but or you want to know me like that, but I don't know you like that. Like, what are we talking about here? Like, this is simple stuff. Absolutely. And when you say the human part of that, because for me, the reason why Miss Marissa was like, oh, yeah, Shayna, always for me, it is a natural inclination. I want to know my kids and then I need to know who raised you. Like, I, I want to know that who's raising you, who are you around and not because I, I want to know like who you are, the things you like, but I want to know the family you come from. And my biggest thing, I need a parent to feel safe with me. That's very important for me, for your parent to feel like once they hand you off to me, that they don't have anything to worry about, right? That may, will I handle a situation like you handle it? Maybe not, but you know that I'm going to make a good and a safe choice for your child. That's important to me. And it's important for me to also warn parents to don't assume that every school has your kid's best interest at heart. Don't assume that because somebody has a title of teacher, somebody has a title of administrator, somebody has a title of principal, that they mean well for your children because everybody does it. And I believe that as an educator, it is my job to prove to you beyond any doubt that is that I'm going to keep your child safe, that I'm going to develop a love for your child the same way you do, right? That is how I operate. And again, some people will say like, oh, that's a very unique approach, but it's a very important approach to me. And I want that same thing reciprocated when I send my kids to school. I don't know my kids' teachers like that, but I'll tell you this, when my son come, comes home, he's a teenager, he's in high school. It like irks my soul when he's telling me some conversations that he had with teachers or some advice that a teacher has given him, right? How you know I want you to talk to my child about that? Maybe if I knew you and I knew who you were, that's fine. But there's certain conversations that I would have with kids, but I'm not having to, like certain, like if I know your parent, right? And, and I'll tell like, come on, we need to call your parent. I know your parent and I, I know your family dynamic. Those are certain things. It's how I develop close relationships with kids and their families. Don't be talking to my child about all of this stuff and everything else. And you know, you don't know me like that. I think the biggest problem I have as a parent with raising a black son is that people automatically assume that my child doesn't have a father or an active father. Yes. Um, oh my goodness. And my husband, I always call my husband a mom dad. Okay. He's like a mother, honey. He's nurturing um, in, in that way. He's not like a mother. He's a father who's nurturing and involved uh, with his children. So we're all hinting on the same, just these assumptions that or people they, make. They for a bad reason like for instance like my husband died of stomach cancer so my children's father uh, you know is not here on the planet god rest his soul but people who find out that my children's father is not around assume it's because of some kind of no and so even though my my kids are going through a grief process and all of this stuff do we look at them with the same compassion or do you just assume father not present means something you know absolutely very strange but that's that's the truth right yes so we're talking about removing all of these biases um from people's minds based on dealing with a specific skin color or a certain demographic 
that these folks are coming to the profession with that are at, in essence, in essence, harmful um, to our children. Um, but when we're looking at the work that you guys are doing and we're looking at it from an organizing perspective, um, the power in other neighborhoods are in schools, right? Like they can go to their school and organize and be in partnership with their teachers and their administrators. Um, but in our communities, if our teachers and administrators already are having bias against us, now we're working against multiple dynamics, right? Working against the government and all these situations. But now I'm fighting in the school that I'm sending my child to where people don't want to partner and don't want to work with me. Um, but because this is what you guys do, you guys organize parents. Um, would you say that organizing parents is a difficult task? Well, it depends, right? It depends on where they are. And, and one of the things you have to know about us, too, is that we don't come unless we're called. Uh, we don't parachute in and say like, oh, this is this looks like a good place to organize. No, we're like the 911. Like if you got trouble, you know, you know who to call. Like we come in in solidarity to help folks on the ground and we listen very closely. Like we're not trying to tell people what to do, because frankly, we don't like when people come in and tell us what to do. And we all did this work on the grassroots level. So, you no, know, but the thing that can be hard is that. And, and all of us, because again, we have lived experience and we've done this organizing work, it, it's really hard to do this by yourself. It's very lonely. And sometimes it seems so big and people are so powerful and you wonder if you can get it done and people come after you, they call you everything, but the name your mama gave you and like, you're like, should I do this? And, and you need people to be able to, to have your back and say, no girl, keep going, keep going. Or you're, you're onto it. Or do you need us to show up? What can I do for you? Can we give you some money? Can we train you? Can we, can we just literally show up and march with you? Um, do you need someone to talk to? Are you okay? Are you strong enough yourself so that you can go and do this work so that it's not so lonely? And they have the power to know that they, they have people who have their back and want to support them and that they're, they're doing the right thing. Because again, we're asking them in many spaces to invest their time and to fight against something that hurt them deeply. You know, I come up, I come into every school situation kind of with my dukes up. Like I like therapy every week for me, because I still am trying to overcome some very early trauma that was inflicted on me, not just by family situations, but by my, by educators and adults that failed me around me saying to people, no, it's worth it to do this and you can do it and that you don't have to do it by yourself and like building that confidence that they should do it and they, they have the power to do it and they can make something big happen. Like that's part of the organizing magic here is, is sometimes you have to address, acknowledge and overcome some of that trauma to say, no, it's worth it to do this and we can make something different happen if we do this together. And if you're willing to to give it one more try to fight against something and try to do something new and different. And that can be, it's that, that can be the most difficult part of organizing, but it is possible when you have the right people who, who not only know that life, but respect it and understand it in a very profound way. And that's not something you learn in a workshop or learn about in grad school. It's something that like, when you have that lived experience, it changes your DNA and you speak a different language in a different way to parents. And that's that's what I think makes us a little different. Mm. Yes. 
And I, mean, I want people to hear you, you didn't say that you drop in spaces and try to organize pa- parents. You come when you're called. So that speaks to me in the volumes because that's true engagement. Um, it's not it's not only advocacy. We have people who want to tokenize parents um, and put parents on the advocacy train. Um, but you come when you are called because you're ready to be in partnership and in solidarity with those parents who want and who need, um, you know, a little bit of navigating. So shout out to you guys for doing that work. Um, one thing, another thing I want to talk about, because I mean, this is just has been amazing and I don't want to run out of time. Um, but I do want to talk about parents of exceptional children, um, who are also known as most people refer to children as uh, exceptional children as special education children, right? Like that's, that's the blanket term. Um, but these are parents of exceptional children. And I, I feel a lot of times we talk, you know, general about parents being ignored, but if you have a child, um, with exceptional needs, those parents are, I mean, day in and day out with the gauntlet, (laughs) fighting for, the needs of their children inside schools, fighting to get the stigmas up up off their kids, um, fighting against people who like to speak in, in language and jargon that they know um, parents may not know or understand, but you can say it in a different way in limits. I mean, all types of things parents of exceptional children are, are going through. So I would love for you guys to just talk about some ways personally and professionally that you've been able to assist parents who have um, students, children with exceptional needs. The thing that I appreciate the most is that whenever there is a a parent or a guardian that comes to us and says, listen, I'm ex- I'm going through something. And like Harry was saying, they feel like they're all alone. Like they're just one person on the island with no one else to help them. And we just ask them to, you know, break down for us what's going on. Uh, wh- however long it takes for you to tell your story. We listen to that. And as we're listening to that, we may be, you, you may see many of us just writing down certain things because a lot of the things that they're telling us are actually things that are against the law that have been happening to their children. The depriving them of certain hours of, of instruction, the making sure that they're not, you know, making sure that they're in a safe place emotionally and mentally. And when the parents are breaking down everything that has happened to their exceptional child, for us, it, it creates an even more higher, higher sense of urgency because this is not just a regular gen ed kid. This is a child that has been given a diagnosis, that has taken certain tests. He has been given, he or she has been given a status that by law entitles them to receive certain things. And if they're not getting it and all they're getting is disrespect, and if the parents have the paper that they sign saying, this is what my child has, and what they are entitled to when that school leader or that speckum or that special education person in that school is not making sure that these needs are being addressed. Oh, yes. Make as much noise as you can, because if it's not just happening to that parent, it could be happening to several in that same school. Absolutely. And that has to be fought. And I'll say being the mother of a child who is exceptional and he is exceptional is what brought me into this work and makes me willing to do this work. Because let me never forget sitting at the end of an IEP table with a six-year-old, with a table full of experts. Like these people all have master's degrees. I have a GED from Boston Public Schools. That's my education level. And I was sitting at the end of this IEP table filled with all of these experts, specialists, people who had analyzed my child. And 
I could tell they didn't like him and they were angry at him because he wouldn't listen and he couldn't be redirected from a preferred activity. And I know my child. I may only have a GED from Boston Public Schools, but I know Matthew. I'm an expert on Matthew and he is a good kid and he is a bright kid and uh, he will not sit at the rug at rug time because he can't sit. He can't do it. And it's because he has autism and ADHD. And the day that I sat there and I realized that these, these people were not going to help my son, like, and like, I was like reborn as an education advocate. And I, even though I'm the president of the National Parents Union, we use work on all this stuff. I work with parents individually at least three a week and still attend IEP meetings as an advocate with parents who come to us and say like, I don't understand this. This is a different language. Like they're not giving me all my options. This can't be it, right? Or they're telling me that like, even though my, my child's entitled to, to these services, they don't do that here or don't have a step. Like, and at, when you become the mother of a child who has special needs or who is exceptional, like you, you have to just put the crown on and understand that you're going to have to be an advocate for your child because you have to learn a different language. You have to, you have to stand up and be that advocate for your child or find other people who will advocate with you because the, the system is never, never going to do anything other than what is easiest for the system. And it's not set up to serve our children. It's served to, it's set up to, to do literally what's easiest, what's cheapest and what's going to get it done and get them out of, out of their hair. So I think it's critically important. And frankly, most of the people who are education justice advocates start off in the special ed community because they see it. And we, we have to, unfortunately, we have to, we have to become that. But what we also understand is that, and I know this firsthand as a mama, when you become the mother of a child with special needs, you question everything. You question yourself every 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 judgment, every decision that you make, and you blame yourself, the guilt that comes along, which people don't understand. Like, oh my God, did I, uh, I don't, I don't know. Did I eat that ham sandwich and not heat up the meat that one time and cause all of these problems for my, kids? all of the guilt and everything. Did I not pick the right teacher? Did I not do the, all of these, did I pick the wrong school? All of these things that weigh on us and not knowing that the system's not even set up to help our children. Like we have to have each other's backs in that. And we have to like be co-conspirators for each other and say, hey, I figured this out. Or if they tell you this, this is wrong. Or I'm going to show up for you so that you don't have to walk into that room alone with eight other people who have master's degrees and, and have them intimidate you and bully you into signing something you don't want to sign. Like, no, we don't do that anymore. And we're not doing that ever again. Yes. And shout out to all my educators who are allies in schools and co-conspirators in schools for um, parents with exceptional children who let parents know their rights and really teach parents on how to navigate the system. Um, those are a special kind of people. Um, and I appreciate them. I've seen people. Yes, go... so the teachers that come out with the wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yes. Like, hey, hey, girl, like maybe you should ask about this. Thank you. Please do more of that. Like that's the energy we need. Definitely need that energy. I mean, I've seen people go against their bosses. Like I've seen all of that being done uh, for rights and advocating for for children with exceptional needs and, and parents who just don't know the system. So shout out to you guys. You guys are special. Definitely a special kind of people. Um, 
And again, thank both of you for sharing your opinion and Carrie for sharing your personal story. I'm just thinking about you and trying to imagine how you already feeling like a reject of the school system for how people have treated you and discarded you. And then here you come, you have a kid um, who has special needs and then you have to then sit around these people who you already felt like they didn't like you. Now you feel like they don't like your kid. I can't imagine being somewhere with a person that I'm trusting my kids with for seven hours a day and knowing that these people don't like my kid. I don't, I don't know how that, like, I don't know. I'd be in I was terrified. Right. I was terrified. I was like, I cannot believe like this, this Matthew, my most precious thing in my, my whole life. I and love he's him six. More than he's six. He's a baby. Oh, six, six. he's a baby. And he's a sweetheart. He just won't listen. You know, if you don't connect with him, he's just not. He's not into it. He's not violent. He's not anything. He's just. He wants to go play with the instruments instead of sitting at the. This is the. You know? This is the piece about that though. When you're saying he just won't listen, it's not that he just won't listen. He has a different way of learning, and I always tell like I I like to rephrase things because. You have kids that are straight up defiant, right? And it's not documented. Like you just being hard headed today. And that's fine. Again, that's a moment. You shouldn't be judging these children off a moment. When you have kids who have documented needs, he has a different way of learning. And if he doesn't want to sit on the rug for whatever reason, what that does to his soul, it's documented that he, he's not going to do that. So what are the other ways that we then adjust or can adjust around his needs to make sure he feels included and supported? Get him a beanbag. Get yes. him the- what are the other ways that are less disruptive and again the secrets that we hold about exceptional children or or students with special needs right if we have more conversations with parents and ask parents more permission to hey do you mind if i discuss pieces of your kid's diagnosis with his class so that his classmates can be more inclusive so his classmates can understand right or we can have more lessons or situations around helping others help him um, but shh, we're not going to talk about it. But yeah, and still you embarrassing and isolating the kid, right? So w- what we're not talking about, other students are still seeing. So, so many things just wrapped up in that. Um, last thing I want to hit on is National Parents Union, you guys do so much work with parents around the nation. Like you said, you guys are in how many states right now? All of them, including all Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. We're, we're in all of them. All 50 states, Puerto Rico, Virgin Islands. How can parents, number one, get involved with y'all, and number two, use your platform to really engage their local and state legislators? Oh, my God. So easy. So if you go to the nationalparentsunion.org website, um, you are going to get connected with our organizing team. You can reach out. You know, all you do is fill out a form. Um, and it goes to the best in the business. Again, Tapshire Cosby, um, Shirley, Jason, our entire organizing team. Um, you, you get connected and then you get connected with a local organization. And if there's not a local organization, local parents that you can connect with so that you're not by yourself. So being able to navigate saying like, I don't know what to do or something's wrong or I, I feel like this is like, what do I do next is, is what we're experts in. Um, and if you're a group that saying like, oh my gosh, I would love to connect with other groups because we want to move something on the state level, you connect with us. We have organizations that are established that affiliate with us so that they can have an in, like a network within a state, um, places like Minnesota, places like, like New York, beautiful examples of this where you have organizations that kind of come together and decide that they want to actually be part of the, st- the NPU New York or NPU Minnesota or NPU Georgia. 
so that together they develop a parent power agenda. So they say like, well, you know, we work in different cities, there's different things going on, but in terms of the whole state, there's like three pieces of legislation that we want to work on, whether it's, you know, addressing breakfast after the bell, child safety issues, uh, giving kids a right to read. Like we just passed a, a beautiful law in, in Minnesota that not only gives kids the right to read and, and have proficiency by third grade, but also $75 million in direct funding to teachers on professional development so that they can actually make sure they have the skills to make it happen. So setting them up for success. But that's parent-led. Like literally parents drove it, wrote the legislation, lobbied for it, got it passed, and now they're getting it implemented. So like these things all happening, like this is this is parent power. This is really moving the needle. So you contact us with your ideas. We get you connected. We have a team of experts who have all done this work on the grassroots level. All our parents, that's the thing. Like we've all done this work. We're, we're all authentically parent led and we get you connected. And then on the federal level, there are always opportunities uh, with the U.S. Department of Education, with the United States Congress, with the United States Senate, with President Biden. Um, you know, we also do work where we're not bipartisan organization. We do work with Republicans all the time around developing new assessments and accountability models and all of these kinds of things uh, where you can be heard on the national level, where you need to be heard, because there's a lot of money and a lot of laws that are passed that can implement things on the local level. So. Uh, you connect with us and our team, and then, you know, together we work to help you on the grassroots level so you're affecting change on the local level. And then we just say, hey, come along with us. Here's a bridge so that if you want to talk to, you know, your state secretary of education, we have a close partnership with CCSSO, and we make sure that parents are heard there. Or you want to talk to your governor. We work with the National Governors Association so that governors are hearing directly from parents. Or... You want to talk to Secretary Cardona? You want to talk to President Biden? Like, we'll get you on there. Like, you you deserve to be in these spaces and you should be heard in these spaces. And we're going to get you to these spaces. Yes, yes, yes. Yes to all of that. And thank you. Thank you guys for the work that you're doing. And thank you guys for being a space, for being a hub, for being a safe haven for parents and parent voices. Like, keep this up. Again, got to find ways to elevate you, this group, and the people that you work with um across the nation and this is amazing so amazing um before we get out of here um i would like to give each of you a chance to thank a black teacher or, or thank some black teachers um carrie i'll start with you so i'm gonna do two really fast um number one my favorite black teacher was my only black teacher i ever had mr billy g um who was my 10th grade jazz band teacher brilliant jazz musician taught in my schools here in Massachusetts, but also um, taught at LAUSD. Genius, like understood me, spoke my language, like knew I was a little pain in the butt, but like saw the talent and like worked with me and talked truth to me. Um, and was a, it was and is a beautiful human being. He's still my friend to this day and I love him dearly. Um, the second, I got a shout, Aisha Elmeki. Um, you know, mama she Mikey, was yes. a teacher, but she was a teacher of teachers and she was a mama of teachers. Um, and she was a beautiful mentor to me. Um, and I want to just honor her legacy and, and the beautiful family of educators she created and her legacy goes on and on and on and on and on. And Absolutely. so many of all of us, but especially in Sharif, oh my God, 
you know, what a blessing. Um, so in, I, I just can't say enough about, you know, the legacy that she leaves behind in so many of the people that she touched, you know, extraordinary, extraordinary things. Oh my gosh. Yes. How, how can I go behind that? This will be, mine will be quick. I mean, two people, but the first is my first, the first black teacher I was ever exposed to, I was in second grade, uh, sister Veronica Paul, which was like, okay, I had my first black teacher, but she's also a nun. So it was like, it just totally <laughs> amazed me. But then she listened to the Supremes cause she would play it in class. So I was, I was, my mom was blown uh, consistently with her. She was awesome, awesome lady. A person that I admire very much to this day is a teacher from my children's school, Mary McLeod Bethune, Mr. Boyd. Mr. Boyd is a specials teacher. Mr. Boyd is soon to be Dr. Boyd. The children love him. I mean, I don't know how many times my son and my daughter come in here, Mr. Boyd taught us this and Mr. Boyd taught us that. I mean, he, when you constantly hear a child naming a teacher, you know they love that teacher because that teacher has taken the time to instill something in that child, you know, part of their love of learning, but also loving the person that's teaching them. So shout out to Mr. Boyd and Mary McLeod Bethune here in Philly. He's great and doing great things. I love it. Listen, I want to thank both of you ladies for coming on and giving your time. Uh, this has just been an amazing time. So much so I'm like, yeah, y'all got to come back on um, in a few months. Definitely have to have you both back on. But thank you. Thank you for your time. And thank you to all our co-conspirators out there listening. Okay, you are listening to Building the Black Educator Pipeline, a show hosted by the Center for Black Educator Development with the help of our partner, Brightbeam. So make sure you subscribe, listen to your favorite podcast anywhere, like, and share. But we'll see you here again next time, everybody. Peace. <laughs>